Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here. When you think of your final destination and your greatest hope for the future, what do you think about? When you feel the pain of your aging flesh or the temptations of your sinful nature or the sorrows of the world around you, in what form do you expect your relief will come? When you get to the end of your race, to the end of all things, what will your life look like? What will be the climax of human existence? And what is the ultimate reality that you believe every individual and society ought to aim at now? If your answer to these questions is something along the lines of dying and going to heaven, you have almost completely missed the point. You have barely half of the answer right, and your conception of the future will have very little power to influence the present. Because the Bible's answer to these questions is not that the ultimate climax of existence is dying and going to heaven. The Bible's answer is death and resurrection. The resurrection of the body is the climax. This morning's passage reflects on these key concepts. We will see that if we get the future right, we will have more hope in the present. And we'll also see that it's possible then for that future of resurrection to invade the present and begin to right some of the wrongs that we face daily. As a church, we're studying the book of the prophet Isaiah this morning. We begin in chapter 9 at verse 8. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 331. We'll also have it up on the screen. Isaiah writes his book to the nation of Judah in the south of modern-day Palestine. And in this section that we're looking at today, He he wants Judah to learn a few lessons about death and resurrection by looking carefully at their northern neighbor, Israel. This is the northern kingdom just above Judah is Israel. And if Judah will trust God's word and look at Israel's experience, they will see that on your outline, you can see they'll see that the nation must die. The nation's attacker must die. And then death is but a precursor to resurrection. Let me pray, and we'll jump in. Father in heaven, please help us now, and please help me in my weakness. I ask, Lord, that your word would shine forth brightly and gloriously, that we would find tremendous encouragement, even as we face death daily. Help us to find great hope in the coming resurrection. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first lesson for Judah is that the northern kingdom of Israel must die. The nation must die. And Isaiah gives four explanations for this impending death. Each explanation takes a stanza of Isaiah's poem. And each stanza ends with the same refrain. We'll see. For all this, his anger has not turned away. And his hand is stretched out still. So explanation number one. 
relieved Israel is not yet relieved of enemies. You read verses 8 through 12. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But Yahweh raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. So Isaiah here pictures Israel as a community who thinks they've escaped a narrow scrape. In verse 9, he says that they have pride and arrogance of heart in which they say in verse 10, the bricks have fallen That is, life has started falling apart on us, but we will rebuild something even more glorious than what we have lost. He's talking about Israel's precarious position in ancient Middle Eastern politics. We saw last week in chapter 7 that the king of Israel had formed an alliance with, with their neighbor, Rezin, the king of Syria, and together they went to attack Judah in the south. And we know that from history that part of the reason for their alliance was their fear of the rising power of Assyria. We have to be careful not to confuse Syria and Assyria. They were two different nations. And so in verse 11 here, he says that you've got an alliance with Rezin. You, Israel, have an alliance with Rezin, king of Syria, but Rezin's adversaries will rise up against you. You cannot stop the onslaught of Assyria. That is coming. And not only that, but in verse 12, your eastern ally Syria itself will turn against you and Philistia on the west will take advantage of you and devour you. So the point is that you feel, you Israel, feel safe and secure as though your threat has passed. But you have little idea how much worse it can and will get. It's like flying across the globe to a meeting, returning home, in declaring that North Korea has been denuclearized. The threat has passed forever, and we can get back to work making things greater than ever. And the conclusion is, for all this, his anger, that is, Yahweh's anger, has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Relieved Israel is not yet relieved of enemies. Explanation number two. Godless Israel will be leaderless. Godless Israel will be leaderless in verses 13 through 17. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of Yahweh of armies. So Yahweh cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. So we see in verse 13 that 
because they did not seek Yahweh's favor. This one who commands armies and can do something to help them. They haven't sought his favor. So in verses 14 and 15, he removed all of their leaders from them, both their civic leaders, the elders, and the religious leaders, the prophets. And in verses 16 and 17, notice how Yahweh has a bone to pick not only with the leaders, but also with the godless masses who follow them. Not even those typically protected by our God, the fatherless and the widows. Not even they get a free pass. They are complicit in godless self-esteem and self-justifying deception. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Godless Israel will be leaderless. Explanation number three. Merciless Israel is scorched by Yahweh's merciless wrath. Verses 18 to 21. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of Yahweh of armies, the land is scorched and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah for all this. His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Do you see here how the people don't even treat other people as people? In verse 20, they see other people, their own neighbors and their own kinsmen, as Cuts of beef to be sliced and gobbled. Verse 21, he mentions the chief tribes of Israel, the two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. They devour one another, and then together they turn against Judah to the south. Because these people don't treat one another like people, Isaiah doesn't treat them like people either. In verse 18, they're not even called people. They are simply labeled as wickedness. It's not the people who burn like fire. It is just wickedness. They burn, they consume, they kindle, and then they roll upward like smoke. So what must happen? Verse 19, the wrath of Yahweh will scorch the land. The people who don't treat one another like people become little more than fuel for his fire. Friends, we need to understand that when people dehumanize other people, they become something less than human themselves. We see this even today as the heritage of racism in our country continues to devour us as we continue devouring one another. If someone is not seen as fully human, we think it's okay to speak about them harshly in public or to deny them basic rights and privileges. Now, certainly we would never say groups of people are just cuts of beef to be sliced and gobbled. No, we have our own set of metaphors and code words that we use instead. 
just this past November, during the election, a township commissioner in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a guy named Ian Hodge, was running for re-election. And in an ad against three opponents, he said that his opponent's agenda included more low-cost apartments that cost property taxpayers more for increased services, crowds our schools, and will change our suburban part of the community into Lancaster City North. And thankfully, people saw right through it that this was just code for we don't want certain kinds of people moving into our community. People saw right through it, and this incumbent came in dead last in a six-way race. I'm not just trying to pick on one guy in Lancaster because this sort of dehumanization is all around us, where we code our racism as low-cost housing or other such things. This sort of dehumanization is all around us, and we think it excuses us from talking to one another, from actually talking to people in public of a different race than us. And we just hang out with our own people. And it prevents us from listening to one another, from learning from or living with one another. And friends, for all this, his anger is, has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Merciless Israel is scorched by Yahweh's merciless wrath. Explanation number four. Justice denying Israel will be denied justice. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help, and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out in this fourth stanza of his accusation, Isaiah targets the lawmakers and the policy writers in verse 1. They have enshrined and codified unjust behaviors. Verse 2, these are behaviors that leave the weak in positions of weakness. They exploit the vulnerabilities of the vulnerable. They've made it impossible for the unemployed to hold a job or for the incarcerated to reassimilate into society, the poor get poorer still, and the wealthy only increase in wealth. Now, if you hear me starting to talk this way, and you immediately start thinking about how most people become poor because they are lazy, and if they would only do something about it, work harder, stop looking for handouts, then they could make something of their lives, if this is where your mind goes, then you are a lot like me. I confess this is typically the direction of my train of thought. And friends, it's striking that our God, who does have a lot to say about personal responsibility, he is also deeply concerned with social responsibility and with corrupt systems and corrupt 
laws and policies. We need to at least be willing to ask the question in our day, at least ask the question of how the systems, the policies, and the laws might actually be turning aside justice or despoiling the vulnerable. And so verse 3 asks, what will you do with your wealth when the day of punishment comes? To whom will you find help when the helper of heaven turns aside from you? Verse 4 is the conclusion to this whole poem, this whole section. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. The nation of Israel must die. And let's be honest, death is painful. It means that we can't just keep doing what we're doing. What we're doing will come to an end. Either we die to ourselves and we change course ourselves, or the Lord brings death and brings these things to an end himself. Either way, the corruption will end. The godlessness, the mercilessness, the injustice will end. The nation must die. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. In chapters 7 and 8, we saw last week, the Lord already said that he would bring in the distant king of Assyria to do the dark deed and bring this nation of Israel to an end. Israel must die and Yahweh needs an axe with which to execute his plans. But you see, that makes the situation a little more complex because Assyria is no better than Israel. What are we going to do about that? So Isaiah must clarify in the next section that the nation's attacker must die. And this is, I'm shifting the verses around a little bit from where they're in your outline. This is verses 5 through 15. I don't actually have time to read all of the next section. I have a very long passage this week. So I'm going to have to just summarize this one. The point is that it's simply this. That according to Yahweh, Assyria is his rod and his staff, verse 5. Assyria is his axe and his saw, verse 15. But Assyria refuses to see the hand of Yahweh directing her attack, her chopping. As, as Assyria goes forth in its conquest of nations, Assyria trusts only in itself. And this is nothing but arrogant speech and a boastful perspective. In verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. That's the main point of verses 5 to 15. Even though Assyria does Yahweh's own work as Yahweh's representative, Assyria must fall under the same condemnation as the nations that it conquers. How does this apply for us? Keep in mind, friends, that our God is not absent. Our God is not absent. Sometimes, like Israel, we suffer as a consequence of our own sin. At other times, though I will extrapolate, at other times we suffer simply because we're in a fallen world. Either way, may we have eyes to see that our suffering is not outside the grasp 
of Yahweh who commands armies. He sees, he knows all that transpires, and even if we are attacked by a godless nation, he will one day make it right. The wicked will not rule forever. Injustice will not reign supreme. You will not go undefended forever. We'll see at the end of our passage what that looks like. So we need to remember, we need to think about how to remember this. How do you endure hardship? How do you persevere, especially when you're disciplined for your sin, when you must undergo daily death like Jesus? We take up our cross and follow him. How do you endure hardship and persevere as men and women of faith when everything is going down the tubes and everything around us is just wrong? We do this only by knowing where Isaiah goes with the third point here, that death is but a precursor to resurrection. Isaiah is building, through this lengthy passage, he is building to an incredible climax, and he structures his discourse really carefully to build to it. What he does now is he's going to give us four short conclusions and then a glorious vision, almost too sublime for words. And it's it's things like this, it's passages like this that are, are making me fall in love with the book of Isaiah, a book I've avoided for so many years. I'm going to tackle this in three chunks, this last part. First, resurrection is beneficial only for the trusting few. Here are the first two short conclusions that Isaiah makes. I'm going to start in verse 16. Therefore, the Lord Yahweh of armies will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. He's still talking about Assyria, by the way, here. Among his, Assyria's stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his Holy One a flame, and it will burn and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forests. And of his fruitful land, Yahweh will destroy both soul and body. And it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord Yahweh of armies will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. These two conclusions here. First, we get a poem about Assyria in verses 16 to 19. starts with, therefore. And then we'll have a prose paragraph that starts with, in that day, about Israel. And this poem about Assyria in 16 to 19, the main idea is that Assyria is done. Assyria is done. He starts with a metaphor of wasting sickness. He moves to a metaphor of raging fire and then goes back to a metaphor of sickness before the hilarious conclusion in verse 19, that the trees of Assyria will be so few in number that a child could write them down. We have a, a, an international student living with us who's been teaching my family how to count in Arabic. And my three-year-old, Alana, usually 
gets only through Wahed, Ethnine, and Salasa. She stops at Salasa because it's how old she is. She loves it. She just camps out there. And Isaiah is saying, Assyria's desolation will be like that. If a child drew a picture of the nation of Assyria, they could stop at three trees. That's all they've got left. There's no fruit left, no life after death for Assyria, no resurrection. In verses 20 to 23, we get this prose paragraph about Israel. It starts with, in that day. And the main idea here is that though Assyria is done, Israel will be back. Israel will be back. When the day of judgment comes, a fraction of the survivors of Israel will finally lean on Yahweh in truth as their only hope. And this remnant will return. There's a promise here of life after the nation's death. There's a promise of hope, a promise of resurrection. Verse 22 is sort of summarized this idea at the end of the verse. Though destruction is decreed, it will overflow with righteousness. Yahweh does everything in righteousness and justice, including bringing his people back to life. So these are the first two conclusions. Assyria is done, but Israel will be back. Resurrection is beneficial only for the trusting few. Letter B, don't fear death when you see it. Let me move on to the third and fourth short conclusions. He turns back, finally, here in this lengthy discourse to the southern kingdom of Judah. Here he comes to the main thing he wants Judah to learn from this whole experience he described about the northern kingdom of Israel. After you saw their destruction and you've been assured of Assyria's end, here's what I want you to get from this right now. Verse 24. Therefore, thus says the Lord Yahweh of armies, O my people who dwell in Zion, that's the mountain, one of the mountains Jerusalem was built on. He's talking about Judah, Jerusalem. My people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. Yahweh of armies will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb and his staff will be over the sea and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. And in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Laisha. O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. This very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Let me explain what's going on here. Verse 24. The first part here is a prose paragraph that starts with, Therefore, Assyria will come after you as well, Judah. After they're finished with Israel and they wipe them out, they will come after you. They will march right up to the gates of Jerusalem. But when that happens, here's the main point. Be not afraid of the Assyrians. 
Yahweh will treat them just as he treated Egypt when he rescued you from their oppression. Remember some of that stuff in Exodus? Moses brought them out. They crossed through the Red Sea. The Lord's saying, I'm going to do the same thing. And then in 27 to 32, we get this short poem that starts with, In That Day, that describes the experience of someone in Jerusalem watching or hearing about the approach of the Assyrian army. There are all these town and city names that, that we don't know because we didn't live there. But what's happening here is this is the Assyrian army getting closer and closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He mentions all the towns and villages they would run over as they get closer. Verse 28 it is kind of like saying, he has come to Harrisburg. He has passed through Lewistown. At Bowlesburg, he stores his baggage. And you get this impending sense of dread. Boom, boom, boom. Getting closer and closer and closer. But remember, verse 24, be not afraid of the Assyrians. So the third and the fourth short conclusions here are, the third one is, there's no reason to be afraid. Fourth, even when Assyria gets right up in your grill. There's no reason to be afraid, even when Assyria gets all up in your grill. Why? Why is there no reason to be afraid? We'll see this very invasion narrated later in the book in chapters 36 and 37. You can read ahead later today if you want to see what it was like. Or Assyria comes right up to the gate and shakes their fist. How could the people of Jerusalem possibly not be afraid? They saw Assyria bring the death of Israel. They saw that northern kingdom fall to this powerful army. And now they see that same death camping just outside their walls. What will enable them to face it down? And it's only the knowledge that death is but a precursor to resurrection. And so Isaiah goes here, starting at verse 33. Don't underestimate resurrection when you dream of it. You will see death, but don't fear it. But when you dream of resurrection, don't underestimate the power of it. Listen to Isaiah's poetic description of what Yahweh is about to do. Verse 33, Behold, the Lord Yahweh of armies will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Hooray! Yahweh will chop down mighty Assyria. But verse 34 even ends with a hint of gloom. Why does he say that Lebanon will fall by the majestic one? Lebanon could simply be a metaphor for mighty Assyria because Lebanon was known for having the, the biggest and the strongest trees, great forests. But it could also be an allusion to Jerusalem itself because the temple within Jerusalem was made primarily out of cedar wood that had been imported from those famous forests of Lebanon to the north. And the next verse suggests that there is more going on here than the destruction of Assyria. Though it may not be by the hand of Assyria, death will eventually befall the nation of Judah as well. Lebanon will be. Lebanon will fall. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse was the father of Israel's greatest king, David. And Isaiah predicts that resurrection life will come from Jesse's royal family. This is where we get confirmation. Yeah, Lebanon does include Judah. This is the stump of Jesse. Judah's been chopped down. But like a shoot coming forth from a cleft stump is one from Jesse's royal family. And what can we expect as we dream about this resurrection after the nation dies and resurrection comes forth through David's line? What can we expect? Verse 2, the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So this king who shoots forth from Jesse's stump will have the spirit of Yahweh resting on him. Not a spirit of arrogance, godlessness, mercilessness, or injustice like Israel or Assyria, but this is the spirit of Yahweh, which is a spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. And how amazing is this in verses 3 through 5? He will not judge by what he sees or hears. He will judge instead with perfect righteousness and equity. He will never let the wicked get away with their wickedness, even if they are really good at hiding it. Here now is the solution to all of the injustice of 9.8 through 10.4. Certainly, we can labor to make our community and the world a better place. We can promote awareness and we can pursue justice, but the power of real change comes from the royal shoot from Jesse's stump. The Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David, who was given the throne of his father David, the one who reigns over the house of Jacob, the one whose kingdom has no end. Only when Israel dies can the promised king rise up to do his work. And astonishingly, that king himself had to die in our place so he could rise from the dead, proving that he is, in fact, this very spirit-filled shoot from the stump of Jesse, the king of the world. What does this mean? Friends, you can trust that Jesus' judgment of you will never be limited to what he sees and hears. If you lean on him, give him your life, bank it all on him, you will not go unheard, unprotected, or undefended forever. And because you know that is true, and that day of resurrection is coming, you don't have to fight for your rights now. Instead, you can spend your time fighting for others' rights. And bringing the glorious reign of King Jesus into fuller expression in the present. This also means that there is hope for true and lasting peace. Please don't settle for superficial peace or social justice in this world. Sometimes we pursue justice because it makes us feel better. Or we do it because it helps us to cope with our own guilt. Or sometimes we compound people's brokenness by making them dependent 
or without dignity or even more ashamed of themselves than they were before we got involved. But the Lord's plan for resurrection involves an upheaval of creation, a resetting of everything back to the way it was created to be, without death, even from predators against prey, with unlikely characters living in harmony, with humanity exercising godly leadership, and with no threat from those pesky, deceitful serpents that screwed everything up in the beginning. If you remember Genesis 3. Let me read the end of this passage. Isaiah 11, starting at verse 6. Isaiah uses these amazing metaphors of the original creation. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. You see, predators and prey have no threat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. Humanity can exercise dominion over the creation once again like they were meant to be. Even a little child. Verse 7. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. These metaphors of, of unlikely characters living in harmony. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And now look, there's no threat from those deceitful serpents that got everything wrong in the beginning. Verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the city. Friends, as we dream about such resurrection, we are better able to face down sin and death in our lives and in our world here and now. And through Jesus Christ, we have hope that the earth will one day be as full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the seas are full of water. So from Israel's example, we learn that the nation must die. And the nation's attacker must die. But death is only a precursor to resurrection for those who love Christ Jesus. Jesus.